Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Rula is the world's finest magazine of cycling and cycling culture. Established in 2006, Ruler interviews the world's biggest cycling names and covers the world's biggest cycling races. Visit our website at ruler.cc and subscribe to support our in-depth features, long reads, independent journalism, stunning photography and immersive cycling coverage. I'm Edward Pickering, I'm the editor of Ruler, and this is Ruler Conversations. I'm joined by James Start, who covered the entire men's Tour de France and is now back in his home city of Paris. And we're going to talk about the Tour de France, which has just finished, with Jonas Vingegaard, the winner of the yellow jersey for the second time. And after that, Dan Cavallari is going to talk with Rob Gitellis, the CEO of Factor Bikes, about the new Factor O2 VAM. A quick reminder to our listeners to go and visit ruler.cc for all of our Tour de France coverage, which was enormous. And also keep following because we currently have Rachel Jarry and India Payne at the Tour de France Femme. Also, to all our listeners, please buy Rouleau magazine, subscribe at rouleau.cc slash subscribe and keep supporting our in-depth and independent cycling journalism. James, have you recovered from the Tour de France yet? Oh, no. <laughs> Don't recover from the Tour de France in a single day. It takes me about 10 days to start to feel like I'm human again. The race is receding into the rearview mirror. Before we get into the detail and go through the race, what would you say is your main impressions and takeaways from the Tour de France this year? You know, it still goes down as a just, a, I think, a, a historic tour. For the first 15 days, it was actually one of the best tours I'd ever seen. And now what is my 34th tour? But then obviously, Pogacar collapsed in the space of, 24 hours really lost seven minutes right and then all of a sudden so I I don't think the results the final results really tell how exciting it was you know you got Pogues down what seven minutes in third place Adam Yates is like 10 minutes down Uh, that does not tell the true story of this year's tour it was an amazing race and a beautiful one yeah no I I loved it in the end surprisingly because normally I'm not a fan of one-sided races but like I said there's there's a nuance to this one which made it different and I know we talked a lot in the second day about the closeness of the race up to that point. And in the end, it was a trouncing. But that, to me, it was the fact that it was close through those two weeks, and it wasn't boring close. It was close in a way that you know, it was absorbing between those two riders. Those two stages, the time trial and the uh, stage de Courcheville, they were meaningful and decisive. Um, but for me, the close GC battle through the race was a reason I, I really enjoyed the race. There was also something about the overall structure which seemed to work. The, the Basque Country Grand Départ, which uh, seems a long, long time ago now. I thought it was one of the best Grand Départs I've ever seen. Uh, the Pyrenean stages were fantastic. Also, quite unusually, um, all the transition stages, and I'm including Puy de Dôme in this, were really entertaining. You had uh, the Puy de Dôme stage, which won by Michael Woods, um, Issoire and Belleville in that middle of the week, which just really entertaining stages where the break took a long time to go and it was a really kind of tactical absorbing battle for the stage wins there was Bourg-en-Bresse which was supposed to be a bunch sprint and which I thought was a bunch sprint all the way through to the final 500 meters when I realized it there was a bunch sprint but it was for fourth place and Casper Asgreen won that one and Poligny where Mohoric won and I said it at the time but I think 
that was the single most dynamic Tour de France stage I have ever seen. And I've been watching the Tour de France since the mid-1980s. Obviously, there are caveats to that, that I didn't see all of every stage through to, you know, for the first 15 or 20 years of that. And I may be suffering from recency bias, but I can't remember a stage, apart from maybe a short mountain stage in 2011 to Alpe d'Huez, where there was action from start to finish. The whole race just seemed to have a kind of ebb and flow and narrative, which I loved. And even even the, the few boring stages that they were, uh, which I think maybe stage three and four, which Jasper Philipson won, were kind of predictable. But at the same time, the first sprint stage of the tour, there's always very suspense where you don't know which sprint is going to turn up with all guns blazing. Stage four, Jesper Philipson won again, but the crashes at the end turned it into something that it hadn't been throughout the rest of the day. And then the Moulin stage, which is probably the stage that everyone following the Tour de France found the least interesting of the whole race. For me, that was fascinating on a personal level because I used to live there. And then something which I don't think we've really talked about enough because the result was the headline, but Vingegaard's time trial in Comblu was the ride of the tour. And we talked a lot about the results and the impact on the GC, but I think when we look back on the career of Jonas Vingegaard, that may turn out to be his apotheosis. He was on another level that day. He was throwing his bike around, his aggressive, dynamic. It was absolutely phenomenal. It defined the whole Tour de France in the end that ride. So, yeah, I've gone on a bit there, James, but I, I just felt that the whole tour as a whole, I thought it was aesthetically very, very good race. Yeah, hats off to the organisers. They came up with a brilliant race profile that was really balanced. You know, you would have really hard stage and then a couple of sprint stages. There was room for everybody here. Yeah, so let's talk about the chief protagonist. I mean, the GC was Pogacar versus Vingegaard and very absorbing battle. I, I loved it as well because... I love that they ride in different ways and also they've got different characters and all the great rivalries thrive on there being you know, a difference in approach. If they rode in the same way, I think it would be a lot less interesting than the reality, which they have different physiological characteristics, different personalities, and that sets off the rivalry. Absolutely. I've gotten to know uh, Pogachar a little bit better uh, because we had some time to sit down with him and he's just this sort of carefree kid still. I mean, he's still the white jersey winner, right? I mean, he's still the best young rider in the tour. And so there's a bit of a kiddish side still to him in a very positive way. And yet he's a very thoughtful person. And it was funny because when we, in our interview, if you recall, he said he always loved the underdogs when he was a kid and he probably wouldn't have liked himself so much. I'm wondering if that's now changing now that he's twice finished second. We'll have to ask him about that. That said, Vingegaard, I don't know as well, and he's obviously very different. Pogacar is very outgoing and Vingegaard is rather introspective. And yet there's something very touching about him, I find. Obviously, his family is incredibly important to him. The first thing he does when he gets off the bike is call his wife and she's often there with their daughter. I find it very touching. And then he's, but yet he's a beast on the bike. So we'll see. I have respect for both of them. And like you said, it's great that they are not the same kinds of people and not the same kinds of riders. I mean, it sets up this beautiful duality that I'm really looking forward to in the next couple of years. Do you think though that Vingegaard has definitively established psychological and physiological superiority over Pogacar. He's beaten him twice fairly handily, and I'm beginning to think, well, maybe you know, ice beats fire, James. The strategy of Jumbo Visma and Vingegaard beats that of Yuri and Pogacar. Well, I think, you know, there's, there's just enough question marks out there that I think it's premature to say that. Certainly, Pogacar understands that his his chief rival is is stronger or than he ever could have assumed. But last year, I think he got a little caught off guard. I think he was a little overconfident after winning the first two tours and then dominating the first ten days, and he got caught out and he made a big mistake and that cost him dearly. And then this year, you know, he came into this tour really undertrained. I mean, I talked with Mauro Gianetti. He said it was almost a mission impossible to get Pogues ready for this tour. And in the end, it was impossible, considering that the guy had broken his wrist in late April 
There's just no way you can compare Pogachar this year to his very best. I don't think we've seen Pogachar at his best for a couple of years. So I don't think, you know, he's going to obviously going to have to go back to the drawing board, but I think that he's going to come out of this stronger. And I hope so. It'll be good for bike racing for sure. I'm hoping he stays upright next year. I'm hoping they both stay upright next year and we see more of this great rivalry. What the tour also brought home was that there are some very strong teams in the Tour de France. Obviously, Jumbo is the strongest. And when you look at Jumbo's roster and what they can do, I mean, I think Sepp Kuss is, I think he could finish on the podium of a, if not a Giro of Vuelta, even the Tour, because he climbs so beautifully. They've got domestiques, climbing domestiques who can stay, you know, like Kelderman and, and Van Aert, who can stay at the front of the peloton, deep, deep into the mountain stages. But they're not the only ones because, remember, UAE finished second and third. And Adam Yates, he was allowed to ride for himself on the Col de la Loz stage to Courchevel. But he did spend time earlier in the race working for Pogacar. And he was demonstrably the third best rider in the race. And he was riding domestique. So yeah, there was a lot of talk about earlier in the race about UE doing a lot of work one day and Jumbo doing a lot of work the next. Actually, the net result was exactly the same. Uh, those two teams, I think, it's kind of in both their interests to turn the race into a battle between Vingegaard and Pogacar because it simplifies things. In the end, it turned out not to be in UE's interest so much. But those teams, there's, there's nothing you can do about the strength of those outfits. Yeah, they're outstanding. And, and UAE has upped their game in the last couple of years. When he Pogachar won his first tour, he didn't have this team with him. He had a better team the second year. But, you know, this is a much better team than when he won the tour. And we saw it because they did get second and third. Let's not forget, Sepp raced the entire Giro. And he raced it hard. And if Sepp Kuss was not at the Giro, Primoz Roglic does not win this Giro. Uh, so he was playing a key role deep into the third week on the mountain stages. If he hadn't crashed on that last mountain day, he would have been 10th, top 10. I mean, he's just an amazing rider. And he's a beautiful, like you said, a beautiful climber. And he's just a, such a player and a playmaker. He's so wonderful to watch. And as fellow Americans, I got, I've known him a bit. And, and, you know, he's just a really nice guy. In spite of the fact that Yui and Yumbo absolutely dominated proceedings in the GC, it was not a bad tour for the so-called smaller teams. The Bahrain victorious, not only did they win three stages, they didn't do it the easy way. They didn't do it by having out and out the strongest rider there. They they did it cleverly. Pelo Bilbao, kind of, as well as riding high on GC, took that stage in the in the Master Central, worked that break perfectly. Same with Mohoric, he engineered that stage victory um, very impressively and they, they definitely did it the hard way. Cofidis, brilliant tour for them because you know they, they went a long time without winning a stage and won two and both times there was no argument about it. Lafay jumped the GC group and beat them fair and square and Jon Izagir dropped everyone on the climb in the hilly stage. And also Ajay Dozer and Israel, both winning stages. I thought Felix Gall was brilliant in winning that stage to Courchevel and Michael Woods win on the Prix de Dome. Was impressed. So it was slightly better for the the other teams, other than the big GC teams, than, than normal. Oh, and then let's not forget the consecration of, of, of Philipson as the dominant sprinter. It's been years since we've seen one sprinter so dominate the racing and he you know he clearly did it even though he came up short a bit in the last couple of stages but you know that that was a result of a couple of things i think once he dominated so much he couldn't rely on the other sprint teams to help keep the break at bay and they had to do a lot more work but you know four very convincing victories and then i don't know how many seconds he got i mean he got Second on the Sean, I think he got second behind uh, Pedersen. He's proven, and they have proven to be the dominant sprint team of current cycling. So that's interesting. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he by far the dominant sprinter because he won four stages and no other sprinter won more than one in the end. I perceived a bit of criticism of Philipson for, first for his sprinting style and then for throwing his weight around a bit during the stage that Asglane won in Borgenbrest. I didn't see anything particularly egregious. No sprinter has gone through their career without moving a little bit on 
finishing straight. And I, I felt he wasn't winning because of any hint that he was playing day. I thought he was winning because he had by far the most organised and strongest lead out in the entire race. Do you think there's anything question about his sprinting style? No, I think they've got it nailed. I mean, Vanderpool is a lead out guy. I mean, that's a, that's a three man train right in itself. I mean, he's unstoppable. But yeah, the one he was starting to raise some eyebrows, you know, basic bullying tactic where he chases down the lotto rider and basically says, you're not going anywhere there on the open roads in front of the cameras kind of chops the guy. Right. I mean, he should have certainly been relegated to last place that day. You know, that that was uncalled for, especially for a rider of his class. And you don't want a guy to go in and break. You send your teammates down to chase him down and you sit on his wheel. That's what you do. You don't chop him in the middle of the Tour de France on worldwide television. You just don't do that. That's kind of not a smart move. And Acorn got second that day. It was amazing. He almost won the stage would have been such poetic justice. So it was interesting. And I kind of wondered, you know, cycling and the Peloton, they have this way of having their own laws and rules sometimes. And I kind of wonder if the Peloton just didn't say, okay, you're not going to win again. We're not going to do anything to help you win another stage. And just didn't participate. I think he isolated himself in more than more ways than one with that move and certainly didn't earn any favours. The next day, Philipson joined in the attacks and put himself in a position, along with Dylan Grunewagen, to actually win that stage, very, very hard stage, ridden in very hard fashion. And, you know, he was complaining a bit at the end that the others weren't working with him, but I don't profess to be a cycling tactical magician, James, but I do know that you do not want to drag Jasper Philipson up to the finish on a stage like that. But I thought the next day he rode a lot more like, you know, the Jasper Philipson who came second in Paris-Roubaix. He kind of polished that blemish off a little bit that day. Right, let's have a few quick fire highs and lows from the race, James. What would you say your favourite favorite GC stage of the race was? The second stage in the Pyrenees was pretty stunning, I think. Pogachar had lost a minute Jumbo was trying to really take it to him over the biggest climbs of the Pyrenees and they couldn't they couldn't drop him and at the end he came back and took 30 seconds back I mean that was pure bike racing at its best so that was pretty amazing I think my favourite was actually the day before the stage to La Rons purely because of the Jai Hindley move infiltrating that massive break and at that point UAE were having to control the race and Jumbo left them to it they couldn't do it and they allowed Jai Hindley at one point, you know, several minutes up the road, a winner of the Giro d'Italia and you know, went on to win the stage, take the yellow jersey. And that was the stage that Vingegaard first damaged Pogacar. What was your favourite non-GC stage? Oh, Puy de Dome. Puy de Dome. I've been waiting 30 years to go back to Puy de Dome. I never have been to Puy de Dome, so to finally get there it was great. And it was nice because you had to make a choice that day as a photographer. If you went to the start, you were never going to be able to get up to the top in time because you had to get there early and take that little train, the panoramic to Puy Dome. So I went there and just, and we had a really nice day sitting up there with my photographer friends, chatting, finding our spots. We were at this, in this beautiful place and it was just great to be back there. Was it worth all of the time for one picture? I don't know, but I was glad to be there. It was an exciting, it was a beautiful finish. I was really happy for Michael Woods. I'm uh, very, very deserving of that stage win. And, you know, there was a great GC battle behind him again for just seconds. So it was it was a pretty great day. Yeah, I think mine, I'm going with stage 19 to Polini. I thought that stage, I know there was there was no GC action that day, but aesthetically, it was like a classic. You just did not know who was going to win out of which break. You know, breaks kept going, then getting chased, capped off by Mohoric's interview after the finish line. Normally those interviews can be a bit generic, but Mohoric, he is a, a sensitive, thoughtful individual who thinks deep thoughts and knows how to express them. And I, I just thought he was a really good advert for cycling that day. I was going to ask you also what your favourite climb of the race was. It's hard to say. I mean, I, I love being on the Tourmalet and I, I actually went on the first turn on the descent and just got a s different side of the Tourmalet than fans packed on the roads. Uh, which I've been getting a lot of since the start of this year because there were so many fans packed on the roads. So I have a, a sentimental attachment to that. But Cordela Loz, I guess, was is just pretty stunning. I was on a moto that day. It was really hard. 
to work. Thomas Vogler you know, kicked him out of the race for a day, his moto, for, but, but why? I mean, cars were, cars were stalling. I have a really good driver. He's a professional motorcycle uh, pilot for the Border Control the Customs, and he, he is really good. He stalled. We were stuck behind Felix Gall on one of the steepest pitches. We'd just gotten ahead of Simon Yates. Gall wasn't going very fast, and we were at a standstill. The fans were just packed, and at one point, he, he stalled. Simon uh, Yates was coming up behind us and it was just like quick instinct. I put my f- foot down and I kept balance and he got us going again. So it was, it was a very complicated stage and yet it was such a stunning climb. It's a beautiful climb. And I was looking at it going, oh, I wish I could be there. I wish I could be here. I wish I could be there. It's a hard climb to do because the race was split up. I wanted to get Vingegaard attacking him, but then I have to get up to Gal. And by the time I got to him, the crowds were so dense we could barely pass. They were saying, you're not going to pass after 3K. We got there right at the 3K marker and 50 meters later, it was just a sea of people. So it was crazy. I agree with you on that one. The Col de la Loz was the climb that really stood out for me. And I think that the fans seem to get a lot of the blame for the problems on the climb. But I, I think the, the quality of driving in some instances, I saw a video of Christian Vanderveld, who was on a on the back of a motor and had a camera on him. And you could see there was there was a car that stalled, and there were lots of fans, but there was also space to pass until some of the other cars and motos tried to get around. And you know, it's rule one of traffic jams. If you can't see your route out, you don't go in. And they didn't leave space for the rides apart. They filled the space and then you know, the yellow jersey got held up. Imagine if that had had an effect on the outcome of the tour. And it was the fans that got blamed, but I thought in that instance, that was actually bad management by the drivers. There was some bad driving. The fans, I have never seen so many fans from start to finish in the tour since before COVID. There was such a desire to get back and see the tour now after so many years where it was, it was complicated. The reason I loved it is, A, it's aesthetics, I think it's the most unique climb with all those steps that go up and flat and up and flat. And also, it's got energy. It's got energy like Mont Ventoux. And there aren't many climbs like that. If they'd let fans on the Puy de Dome, I've no doubt that would have had energy as well. But there, there's a kind of atmosphere, something in the air on the Col de la Loz, which elevates it above other climbs and I hope the tour keeps going back there especially if they use that final climb to Courchevel. So lastly James what's one of your lasting memories of the the Tour de France? What do you think you're going to look back on this year and kind of remember that specific thing which exemplifies the tour for you? Lasting memories uh well the rivalry uh which uh, I think even though Vingegaard has won the last two tours is still very promising for the future of the sport and I'm excited to see how that will evolve. And I would say the fans, they were really there. And it was, despite some of the complications we talked about, you can't take them away. And they really add a lot to the sport. They add a lot for the riders. And it was jam-packed the whole time. And it was it was pretty spectacular. So I'd say those two things. And then I, I guess a special word out to Adrien Petit, who was caught in one of those big crashes, all bent. He was like, you know, he was like a mummy in motion trying to ride and struggle to finish day in and day out. He even got the most uh, aggressive rider one day for just finishing the race, the time cut. I thought he sort of embodied a journeyman cyclist who is still such a, a pure cyclist at heart and will do anything to finish. It was such a portrait of courage and one that you just, you don't necessarily see with all the television cameras, but I got to see, and that really struck me as just the embodiment of the courage and sacrifice every one of these guys uh, portrays. Yeah, and I think for me, it was Thibaut Pinot on stage 20, um, riding up the the Petit Ballon, uh, I think it was, and in front of his most ardent fans and I thought that was the moment that I would use to try and draw people into cycling if I had to to show people what cycling is and what it means that battle of a rider having one last attempt to win a stage on his home roads against the odds and of course he lost 
that for me was the Tour de France. And when I think back to this race, I think that's the strongest, most intense memory. So James, thank you very much for your hard work over the three weeks of the Tour de France. And finally, James, you spoke to a few people before the end of the race about their impressions of the Tour. You spoke to Mario Gianetti and Rolf Aldeg. Uh, Mario Gianetti, the manager at UAE Emirates, and Rolf Aldeg, who is the manager at uh, Bora Hansgrohe. And they're going to share their impressions of this year's Tour de France with us. Obviously, this tour didn't work out exactly as you planned so far, but it's been a, an amazing tour in general. One, I think, that will go in history. Do you agree? I agree. I agree. For us, it uh, was a goal, was a dream, was a mission to try to get today in good shape for the Tour de France, but it was quasi mission impossible, we knew, because uh, five weeks without bicycle, without ride a bike, and uh, in, in completely stress, because uh, imagine today looking in Instagram and Twitter of the other rider that was training in Sierra Nevada, in Teide, whatever, and making work, hard work for, to prepare the tour. And he was at home just uh, doing some uh, watching and doing some uh, ramp uh, on trainer just after four weeks. Yeah. So it was very long time. And in fact, three and a half week training after five weeks stop to be ready for the Tour de France only today can be in this, in this in, yeah, competitive is still second in the tour. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what he's doing. No, this is why from the beginning for us it was clear we have need, we, we have asked to Adam to be ready. He was uh, our co-leader mm-hmm. and actually is in the podium in this moment in the tour. So, because we know, we know that it's possible and that they did something amazing and it's still there. So, but we knew it will be very, very complicated. Uh, to beat today and the top, um, to beat uh, Vingegaard, the top condition also for today. Yeah. I mean, even even though the last two days, uh, the time trial and the last climb, did not go the way he hoped, up until then, this has been one of the great battles. 10 seconds, 8 seconds, 4 seconds. He was a, still a player in one of the great tours, I think. I think, you know, this was uh, some uh, epic, no? Because this battle uh, so close, a uh, true rider, coming from the tour of last year that it was already started like this you know with a big fight day by day and was so hard this tour but so nice for us to be in the race for the, the, the spectator on the road for the tv viewer for everybody i think it was one of the best tour de france ever for this battle no and even now uh, that today he saved his second place in col de la los and any other rider will maybe lose 20 minutes that day that's incredible what he did so also did this aspect make to understand how big is this show how big is the heart of today and uh, how big is the class also of uh, Jonas Vingegaard and it's promise for the next years also a big battles and probably we can expect in the future we can have in this battle other contender, Evenepoel, Ayuso, and other young they are coming. So that is uh, is so nice uh, this moment of cycling. Rolf, uh, the tour is, is coming to a close. It's been an amazing tour this year. One of the I think will go down as one of the, the greats. Highlights for you? Uh, it doesn't take long for us <laughs> to figure out the stage win and the yellow jersey with, with Jai was amazing. But as every tour, you know, has highs and lows. And then, of course, the crash, which uh, really destroyed a lot of hopes uh, concerning the podium. But yeah, in general, I do agree. It was a very interesting tour and a lot of unexpected things did happen. What makes this tour exceptional? I think the you know how it was designed was like you know the stress uh, and the bus country they are you know very aggressive offensive riding um, early climbing and then always like that so you know so to say breaks two sprint stages then uh, which were not ridden full gas still spectacular in the sprint but you know like if you have tailwind and you cruise with 37 kilometers an hour tailwind that gives everybody you know a lot of recovery which then was turned into aggressive riding into the next mountain day. So I think that the design of the tour made it really interesting. This episode of Ruler Conversations is brought to you by GCN+. The Tours de France are here. 
They're the greatest races in the world, and you can see every unmissable moment on GCN+. I'm not actually going out for much of the tours this year, so I'm really looking forward to being able to watch every stage from start to finish, ad-free. And for those days where life gets in the way of a cycling fan's real priorities, I can catch up at any time, because there are full replays of both races on demand. For the really busy, there is a selection of tailored highlights packages. You can go for long, short, or just the final kilometres. And as a cycling journalist, one of the most useful features is the ability to pause and rewind the live coverage. And this feature is great for trying to work out what's happened and why. You can also take the action with you if you're out and about. You can watch GCN Plus on any device. GCN Plus have brilliant commentators and co-commentators and an expert panel of knowledgeable ex-pros who will dissect and analyse the action, but also convey the fun and passion of the tours. And you can relive the best moments and biggest talking points on the weekly World of Cycling show, and this airs throughout the season. If that's not enough, you can get all the pre-race information you need with previews, route maps, profiles and start lists all available on the GCN app. With GCN Plus, the coverage continues all year round, with coverage of all the biggest races from the road, cyclocross, track and MTB seasons. You'll also have access to a huge collection of exclusive cycling films covering all aspects of the sport, from chats with legends through epic adventures to record-breaking challenges. There are already 150 titles, with more being added every week. A GCN subscription costs as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, and all our listeners can get 15% off an annual GCN Plus subscription. Head to gcn.eu slash ruler15 to subscribe and save 15%. This episode of Ruler Conversations is also brought to you by BMC. At Rulo, we've been listening to a few other great cycling pods and we want to share one of our favourites with you. The Rider's Digest, powered by BMC, takes you into the world of bikes with unparalleled access to everything. From getting inside the World Tour and Mountain Bike World Cups through to on-the-ground access at some of the biggest events. They also take deep dives into industry secrets and cutting-edge bike tech. Champion riders like Fabian Cancellara, Cadell Evans and Greg Van Avermaet are familiar voices on the pod and they're mixed in with some next-level sound design to bring you right into the visceral world of cycling. If you want to experience a different perspective on the cycling world, then search for the Rider's Digest wherever you get your podcasts or hit the link in our show notes. And now, back to Rulo Conversations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ruler Magazine Tech Podcast. I am your host, Dan Cavallari. I'm joining you from Colorado here in the United States. It is a blisteringly hot day here in Colorado. It has not been pleasant to ride outside today, which is fortunate because I'm injured, so I can't. <laughs> but one thing we did have is a, is a wonderful uh, Tour de France stage today and a wonderful Tour de France in general. And one of the cool things about the tour is we, we often see this parade of new equipment, new gear that comes out right around this time of year. So for a gear nerd such as myself, it's a very exciting time uh, to see all the new bikes, all the new technology, not necessarily brand, brand new, but uh, I think it launched about two weeks ago now is uh, Factor Bikes has a new bike, the O2 VAM, and it's a completely updated, uh, all sorts of new technology in it. And it's hard to see that kind of stuff when you're looking at the bikes on the computer screen or on the TV screen. And so I actually, I wanted to get a little deeper into what makes the O2 VAM any different because at first glance, you know, to the untrained eye, it may just look like another bike, another climbing bike, but there's a whole lot more to it. So as always, I like to go straight to the top. So today I'm talking to uh, the Factor Bikes CEO, Rob Gitellis, who's joining me from Thailand today. Rob, thanks uh, thanks for joining me. Thanks. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, I happen to be in Thailand because we're opening a, a showroom here at the end of the week. Normally I'd be in Taiwan this time of year or at the Tour de France. Nice. I would also normally be at the Tour de France this time of year, but I, I was there last year. I took this year off. It's neat to see Factor making inroads in the U.S. because in terms of, you know, the big names of cycling brands here in the U.S. anyway, you know, Trek, Specialized, Giant, the, the big three, as we all know them, kind of take up a lot of consumer brain space. But uh, there's there's so many other brands doing so many cool things. And Factor has sort of come to the forefront of a lot of people's minds in terms of uh, riding and bikes because of 
the sponsorship of, of a Tour de France team. Tell me a little bit about the history of Factor. Where did Factor come from? Sure. Well, I mean, Factor the brand was actually started in the UK by a Formula One telemetry company working with Aston Martin. It was more of a technology showcase. Um, and then the Aston Martin decided that when they were producing the 177 car, that there would be an opportunity to also offer a bicycle alongside of it. It was very interesting bike. It was way ahead of its time. They made nearly everything in the UK from the power meter to the wheels to the frame, and it was all made in-house. Very, very special, but very, very, very expensive. It was around 40,000 pounds. And so it was never really meant to be a, you know, a commercially viable product. It was, as I said, a technology showcase. I was involved with the sort of the development of the brand right from the very beginning because I've been building carbon fiber bikes in Asia for 27 years. And a lot of those bikes that have won the Tour de France came out of my factories over the years. And so around 2017, I decided rather than continuing to make bikes for other brands, I wanted to have my own brand. And in so doing, I always thought it was easier to maybe work with something that had a little bit of brand recognition and starting from zero. So I purchased uh, Factor from BF1. And basically what I got was a name. And then I, I went to work, you know, starting some new products. And it took a couple of years. And so we're seven years on now. We sponsored Tour de France team AG2R before we ever sold a bike, which was pretty crazy. Nobody would have uh, expected us to do something like that. We got third place at the Tour de France that year. The next year at Paris-Roubaix, uh, with Sylvain Dillier, we were second place. And this was for a brand that a lot of people felt like it came out of nowhere. But we had been building bikes for Cervelo, for Trek, for, you know, Canyon, many brands, you know, for many years. And so for us, the manufacturing side was somewhat easy, but it was entering the market, which has taken up until seven years now, to really kind of get that brand recognition that I think we, we're now starting uh, to receive. That's interesting because a lot of times that's sort of the opposite direction brands have to take. It's, you know, a lot of it is marketing and, and getting brand recognition out there and then figuring out sort of the, the manufacturing end of it. But you already had control of, over that part. Do you think that puts you ahead of the curve a little bit? Yeah, I think it's something we're really proud of. I think we're one of maybe two or three brands that actually make their own bikes. And everybody else buys their bikes from companies like I used to run, you know, from third-party manufacturers. So I think it gives us a huge advantage because we can develop bikes quickly. We can also make exactly the bike that we want, not the bike the factory wants to give us. Because quite honestly, I was when I was doing contract manufacturing, I was almost always constrained by how much a brand was willing to pay. And so by building my own bikes in my own factory, I removed that constraint. Was that, I mean, was it really just a passion project for you or was there sort of a, a little crack in the market where you said, I can do better? Um, honestly, yeah, I think there was a few things like I was very close to the founders of Cervelo or the founder of Zip or the founder of Envy. And all of these guys had sort of moved on. They were entrepreneurs like myself, but they had moved on. And I always felt like, you know, I was really a big part of the results that they all achieved, but I was always behind the scenes. So I always thought, okay, now's my chance to step forward. But I also always thought that I could do better. And I think we have. Did you have to sort of come up with designs from scratch or was there already some of the design elements in place? I think that the designs all had to come up from scratch, but I think the the thought around what would be the obvious bikes was was pretty clear to me. It's funny, you know, when we did the first iteration of the O2, I had just finished working for Cervelo on their second to last iteration of the R5. And I always felt like, hey, we left something on the table with the R5. Let me make the O2 the way I always thought it should be made. And then, you know, have the bike that I think the R5 should have been. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's already stacking you against some really impressive road bike technology. I mean, the R5 is an excellent bike. What did you have to go through and, and how did it come about that you came up with this O2 that was ready out of the box essentially to compete with those super bikes? We already knew how to make the bikes. I think that we, I always had my own sort of philosophy on stiffness. I always felt like brands were maybe going past the point of diminishing return of always making bikes too stiff. I always felt like there was a balance that was needed between the front and the rear 
rather than this ultimate stiffness that a lot of brands were always trying to achieve. That was the direction that I took factor in. And I think that you can see that almost every retiring pro wants to ride a factor now. So I think when they get to pick the bike that they want to ride and they choose a factor, I think that says a lot. I can attest to that. I mean, my early days at Velo News when I was with them uh, was testing bikes that were just the absolute pinnacle of stiffness. And on one level, that's great. I mean, if you're a pro, if you're riding the Tour de France, if you need every ounce of stiffness you can get, that's great. For the rest of us, you know, your back suffers, your body suffers, and that actually can shorten your ride, right? You know, you're not, you're not going to go further if you're uncomfortable. And I think that was a lesson that was hard learned in the industry. Uh, and we've seen a little bit of a pendulum swing back. We've seen in just the last few years, sort of all around bikes, endurance bikes, aero bikes, all kind of get melded into one. And that actually factors in a little bit to the O2 van, which we're going to talk about in, a, in just a moment. But I do want to talk really briefly about the staple of rear end compliance, which I think is where most people need it anyway. And drop seat stays uh, have become the feature du jour of, of comfort for the rear. But you've taken a little bit different tack on that. In addition to the drop seat stays, there's other things that you've done back there. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you, you came to those, those features? Yeah, well, the UCI just recently relaxed the three to one rules. They also had another rule that that said the the absolute minimum diameter of a tube had to be one centimeter. And so they took that away as well. By them doing that, that enabled us to have tube shaping at the rear there that could really give compliance where we were never able to achieve that before because what we've done is we've tapered the tube down to being very, very thin where the top tube connects to the seat tube. And yet it's very wide. So it's almost acting a little bit like a leaf spring. It's almost unperceivable, but almost everybody who rides the bike, as soon as like in the first minute or so, they're like, this is a very interesting feeling. It's a very, very um, lively bike. But what you don't feel is you don't feel all of the little vibrations or the little resonation from the road that you normally would feel on pretty much every other bike that we produce. So. Mm-hmm. Now I've done a lot of tours of facilities, carbon facilities and frame manufacturing facilities. And I personally have a sense of, of what goes into the, the craft of building a carbon frame, but I'm curious, you know, a lot of people see those wispy, tiny tubes, those one centimeter thick tubes. And they think, Oh boy, I'm going to break that, you know, in a heartbeat. Yeah, quite honestly, I've been building bikes now, carbon fiber for 27 years. I worked for the very first carbon fiber factory in Taiwan, which essentially is the very first carbon fiber bike company in the world, if you think about it. Nothing's changed. Materials are essentially the same. Resins are essentially the same. What's different now is we really know how bikes are used. And so we can test for use case scenarios. And so we really understand that if a bike passes, you know, this test and that test, that it's going to be very reliable for our consumer. And so I think that's really become the main difference is a lot of times when bicycles first started being manufactured, they were manufactured by tennis racket companies or golf shaft makers. And they didn't really understand exactly how bikes were used and the testing that was needed. And I think now we just really understand it. And I think the other thing is, you know, it's it's like every bike now has a carbon fiber dropout. When we first started doing this, every bike had an aluminum dropout. Why did we not have carbon fiber dropouts? Because it took one brand to say, hey, let's see if this works. And then it worked. And then everybody's like, hey, let's do that. And that was actually us in Santa. You know, that was my factory working for Santa Cruz. And now all of a sudden, you know, there's no such thing as an aluminum dropout anymore. But nothing changed other than a willingness to try something different. Mm-hmm. In terms of perception too, I think one of the things that has changed pretty dramatically, I would say in the last few years is this I, this departure from stiffness as the ultimate determining factor of the quality of a bike. And part of that is the way a frame moves under the rider. A lot of those things that you talked about, the golf club, the tennis racket, that's a linear movement. Bikes don't move just linear, you know, in a linear fashion. There's torsional uh, movements. There's the rider leaning over. Did you come to that understanding before you made the the first O2 and say, okay, we need to tailor the way the frame moves torsionally rather than just in a linear fashion? What we understood there is, is we wanted to understand 
exactly how, yeah, I guess torsionally would be the right description of how the bottom bracket reacted with the head tube of the bike. And so I think that that was what was always missing was brands would always come to me and they're like, I want a 150 Newton meter head tube and a 285 Newton meter bottom bracket. But then they wouldn't think about all the things that happened in the middle. And so, yeah, we really thought about how does this twist on its own. And so we developed some tests that really kind of represent, you know, not the bike in a horizontal fashion, but the bike leaned over at a 22 degree angle, the way it would go around the corner. And then that really helped us to understand the behavior that the bike would see. And we're going to talk more specifically about some of that testing as it relates specifically to the O2 van, because that is the new the new beast, some of the really uh, not granular stuff that has gone into testing this and, and making sure that it does all the things that it promises, but really streamlining sort of the research process of this. And I think a lot of brands have done this in recent years by using CFD, which is computational fluid dynamics. It's basically using a computer to, to see how air moves over the frame and the rider and the wheels and all of that. And, you know, factors using CFD as well, but there's other processes and there's other magic going into the mix. Talk a little bit about the development of the O2 VAM specifically and how you arrived at the tube shapes and the overall design of the frame. Yeah, well, I think the, you know, it really starts with the discussion between my uh, my head of engineering, Graham Shreve, and myself about, you know, what is the, the goal for the bike and what's the constraint for the bike. And so what I told Graham I wanted was I want the world's most aerodynamic 700 gram frame which those two things kind of, you know, go contrary to each other. Because normally, if you want super light, you go very small round tubes, and it's very difficult to get any kind of aerodynamic advantage out of it. We were able to come to that middle ground, where we essentially developed the world's, you know, fastest 700 gram frame, first working, as you said, with CFD, then we went into the wind tunnel, we tested a bunch of plastic models, we decided, okay, this was the final direction, we made our molds. We went back to the wind tunnel. Uh, we validated it. We then worked with uh, Israel Premier Tech, Dylan Tunes in particular, testing different iterations of layups, making sure that the ride quality was correct, making sure that it you know met all of uh, the demands that a World Tour racer would need. And then we were able to move to production. Getting more granular than that, what we've realized in bike racing in general is we can see now bike racing has really become a little bit boring in the sense that it's all about the last climb. It's not about sitting in the bunch for hours and hours. There is the breakaway. The breakaway is usually caught, not always, but it's really about the last climb. And so the last climb doesn't happen at 45 kilometers an hour as most bikes are tested. The last climb happens at 21 kilometers an hour because you're going uphill. And so what we tried to do was figure out a way to kind of change that that break-even point where, where does weight matter over arrow? And everybody always thought, well, it's about 8%. You know, when you get to 8%, you want the lightest bike possible. Up until 8%, you want still arrow. But of course, you know, this was all designed around pros climbing at 21 kilometers an hour. Most average humans are not. Most average humans like myself are climbing at 10, 11 kilometers an hour. And when you start climbing at those kinds of speeds, Weight combined with arrows starts to really kind of make a lot of sense at that point. And so while we've been saying arrow is everything, arrow is everything, it is until a point. And so I think it's really important to think about the speed at which something is used. So if we look at our Ostro VAM, which is our still very light, very fast do-it-all bike, it's about 12 watts faster than the O2 VAM at 45 kilometers an hour. But if we go down to 20 kilometers an hour, it's only five watts faster. And if we go down to, you know, 10 kilometers an hour, the O2VAM is actually faster because of the weight savings. And so that was the message that we're trying to instill with this bike is it's the bike, you know, for that person who climbs a lot, wants a very light, very nimble bike, and wants to understand that they're not giving up anything on those. When you're sitting in the bunch all day, you're not giving up anything because it's still very aero. You know, and while I say it's 12 watts slower than the Ostrovam, the Ostrovam, there's only one other bike in the World Tour that's close to it. And every other bike is about the same speed as the O2Vam as far as uh, aerodynamics go. So you're really not giving up anything on that bike aerodynamically, but you are, you know, at 700 grams, including the seat post, because it does have an integrated seat mask. Mm -hmm. 
So not necessarily a, a climber only bike. I mean, it can hold its own in other situations. Absolutely. And so I think what we're trying to define now is the speeds that which products are used at, because, you know, even on our Ostro gravel, you know, unbound is raced at 30 kilometers an hour or something like that. It's not a 45 kilometer an hour race. So if you look at the aerodynamics of our Ostro gravel, they're designed for those speeds. They're, they're not designed for world tour uh, speeds. And when you start to look at slow speed aerodynamics, it really starts to make a big difference. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Graham Shreve, who is a mad scientist who I know I know fairly well. And he, he also designed some very, very fast bikes at Cervelo. So, you know, you've got some good talent working on these these bikes as well. Getting into a little bit of the more granular stuff that you're doing here, one of the things that caught my eye in your in your white paper here is the the finite element analysis, which I don't necessarily think is exclusive to you guys. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, no, but do talk, yeah. Yeah. Talk to me, talk to me a little bit about that. What are you testing in the, the finite element analysis and, and how does that improve the factor of the O2 VAMs overall performance? I think everything comes down to optimization. Everything in life almost comes down to optimization. And so you can't just think about, okay, I want it to be arrow. I want it to be light. You have to think about how to always optimize the shapes for what works best and so FEA is telling us, okay, this is a good shape for, you know, making it very strong, very stiff, but then you contrast that with the CFD and then the CFD might say, yeah, that's a great shape for, you know, those things, but it's aerodynamically not very good. So we spend a lot of time just going through these levels of optimization and, you know, it's kind of crazy. I was speaking to a very senior person at Google just two days ago about AI and where that's going to take us with bikes. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to see the bikes that come out of because, you know, they'll be able to take so much information and and then pile it all together. But essentially, that's what we're doing now with the FEA is we're trying to optimize the performance of the bike and then with that, work with the CFD and then do the wind tunnel validations. Mm -hmm. Now, I I know I'm jumping all over the place a little bit here, but, you know, a lot of those things come together. and, And this has always been the story of bike design is compromise, right? You have to compromise to get all of those elements together. And then once you have this wonderful, wonderful design that is the fastest thing you've ever seen, then you throw a rider on it (laughs) and that changes everything. Where do you fall on that? Well, I, I go backwards from that. I would say a lot of times, a lot of companies, they design these amazing bikes and then they get it over to the manufacturer and the manufacturer's like, oh, this is going to be very difficult and this is going to be very expensive. And then all of a sudden, a lot of those features go out the window. And to give a quick little story, I mean, when I was doing contract manufacturing, this would happen all the time. I'd be like, well, for $40 more, we can add those features. Uh, We could make this better. And always the answer was no. And so at Factor, we don't worry about that. $40 $40 because to us, we're the manufacturer. And, you know, to us, it's just $40. It's not compounded on margin and many other things that create complexities for these big brands. So I, I think that that's really important to understand about bike design, where one of the big constraints comes from. Obviously, yeah, the rider sitting on a bike is a huge part of it. And so, you know, I think that that's why if you look, you know, we usually develop a system. So we're not just developing a frame, we're developing handlebar a seat post, a wheel set with every bike that we put out. And so I think that we're always thinking about how will each of those things interact with the bike and interact with the rider. And then our CFD is powerful enough and our engineering staff is powerful enough that we're actually able to put a rider on the bike with moving legs, which is a lot more complicated than most people's CFD. Sure. Now, do you, I'm curious, one of the other things that I just read was that your um, R&D department and your manufacturing facility are quite close together now, which allows you to prototype pretty quickly and do things like that. Do you also do live wind tunnel testing on site? We do not have our own wind tunnel. Uh, we work with one uh, that's local to Graham, but we did go there five times in 2023. Yeah. Um, so we do go there quite often because it is quite local to us and we have a team, you know, our engineers can go there. Um, we don't have a wind tunnel at Factor. I think that it's a bit, a bit overkill, um, but good on those companies or company that has one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that another, another consideration? I mean, we've talked for years and years and years about wind tunnel testing. Has CFD really made that obsolete or is there still a place for that? I mean, is it still an important part of the checks and balances of designing a frame? Well, I think that 
CFDs changed a lot in just the past couple of years with the, um, you know, it used to require a supercomputer. And so you would spend a million dollars a year on, on, on the computation. Now you can outsource that to Amazon, to Google. And so it's really kind of opened up CFD and the ability to use it a lot more now than you were able to in the past. So in the past, you know, to do a week of CFD was going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now it's, you know, it's in the, you know, thousand dollars a week or something like that for just the computation. So that's a lot easy. Unfortunately, you got to pay a guy who knows how to use it an awful lot of money, which is sure. a totally different story. <laughs> but, uh, but CFD, I think has become a lot more um, prevalent, at least in our company, but the wind tunnel is still really necessary for that validation. So, and you almost need to be able to take, you know, because the wind tunnel is also when you put the body on the bike. And so, and then you start the legs moving and then you have the wheels turning, all of those things, which are still a little bit difficult to do now in CFD. There's even, you know, the next aspect of that is going to the velodrome with the riders to do the true, you know, testing there. But what's crazy is that we went to all of this effort on a climbing bike, which no one has ever done before. And so I think that's really one of the main differences here is everybody's so focused on, oh, this is our aero bike. And that's where they put in all that effort. We put in all that same effort on a climbing bike. The pure climbing bike sort of became almost a dirty word as, you know, as the <laughs> aero revolution was happening. And so it's interesting to see that, again, that pendulum swing coming back a little bit. And getting back specifically to the O2 VM, I think when you talk about a climbing bike, it's impossible to not talk about a climbing bike or talk about a climbing bike without talking about the wheels. And the O2 VAM comes with a black ink, which is your, your components, black ink, uh, 2833, uh, arrow climbing wheel set that 2833 refers to the depths of the front and rear wheels, the wider, or excuse me, the deeper wheels in the back. Correct. That's correct. And why is that? How did that specific depth for the front and rear come about as it, as it interplayed with the frame itself? Well, I think that was also part of the, the process of that optimization, which what wheel depth would work the best for, you know, that particular fork design for that particular uh, seat tube design. The seat tube design of the frame is really quite special. It's quite wide. It's almost following the shape, but it is also aerodynamically shaped. And so what it's happening is the seat tube is actually creating the forward edge of the wheel. And so when we look at it, it's completely blending the wheel. It's actually acting as if it's the, the leading edge of the wheel. In the case of the rear wheel, in the case of the front wheel, we were really just trying to optimize for weight and obviously come up with still something that would perform very well in crosswinds. So that's how uh, we developed those shapes. This is our first uh, set of wheels where we're using carbon spokes, which is something new to us, which meant that we went to a higher flange hub, which also means that we have a lot more stiffness out of these wheels. So that's why we also felt pretty comfortable going to those wheel depths without losing stiffness. Yeah. Now that's interesting. And, you know, I've heard that before about how the frame, uh, the seat tube can, can act as the leading edge of the wheel. Does that mean you have to get the wheel entire very tight into the frame or were you able to optimize it without sort of limiting? No, it, it doesn't because, you know, now, gosh, the tire sizes you need to, you need to accommodate for such a wide wide breadth of tires. So no, it doesn't really require like the tire being really close to the seat tube. It's just a matter of a really clean airflow from the, the seat tube onto the tire. One other notable feature on the O2 VAM is that you uh, have used, opted to go with a seat mast yes. uh, instead of a seat post. Tell me about that. Why the seat mast? As we were talking early on in the podcast, you know, we, we came to this very unique top tube design that doesn't allow us to use an internal wedge or an internal seat post because the tube is so flat uh, where it meets the from the top tube to the seat tube. So, you know, we took the a little bit of a risky move, I would say, going to a seat post topper. Certainly something Trek has been doing for many years with success. We felt like this was the best solution for um, meeting all the demands of the frame. We're actually offering six sizes of toppers. So a lot of people are like, oh, what happens if you sell the bike or this or that? We, we, there's a solution for everything. There, there's exactly the same fit with the different toppers as there would be with a standard seat post. And the ability, if, if you do have to cut the seat mass down, that there'd be, you know, you could still go very long if you needed to later. But we just felt like that was the best solution for being able to provide the compliance in the bike and also achieve the weight goal. Like I said, the 700 gram frame, including the seat mast. 
So, you know, you're basically deducting the, the weight of the seat post out of the bike, which is why we're able to, I think our, our standard weight with pedals is 6.4 kilos if you're using Shimano pedals. I'm looking at, at the, the geometry figures here on, on a 56, which is what I would normally ride. You know, you're looking at a trail figure of 57. It's not anything too terribly surprising. Have you seen any of the pros at the, at the world tour level requesting any different geometry tweaks? I mean, where are we with, with geometry right now, especially on a climbing bike? I think you could see that our trail number is the same for all sizes of bike, which to us is really important. The only way to achieve that is to have a lot of different offset forks. So we actually offer four different forks with this bike. Um, again, being the manufacturer, we can afford to do that and we can also manage it. So we have four different forks. I would say the World Tour guys were going lower, 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 and now they're all coming back up again. So we almost have nobody fully slammed at Israel Premier Tech. And so what we did was we actually increased our head tube height by about 10 millimeters on this bike so that to give it a little more upright position, because it is a climbing bike, when you do actually, you know, spend a lot more time, you know, on the top of the top of the bar than you would if you were in a, a fully aero race bike. And so, you know, that's why we, we took that conscious decision to raise it up. But none of the pros then said, oh, this is too high for me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and also to keep in mind, I mean, pros are, they're, they're a different animal than, than yeah. you and me. I mean, <laughs> they're a lot more I flexible think- than me for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. By a long shot. I can, I can barely stand up anymore without making dad noises. <laughs> so I, I feel you there, Rob. Uh, if people want to learn more about the O2 VAM, is it live on the factor bikes website right now? It's live on our website and there's quite a bit of information out there and a uh, lot, lots been spoken about this bike. Yeah. And it's a beauty of a bike, especially if you like that more traditional silhouette, but still like all the technology that goes into making uh, the bike as modern as possible. The O2 VAM definitely ticks all of those boxes. It is a gorgeous bike. Check it out on factorbikes.com. Rob, where's the, where's the social media for Factor Bikes? I believe it's uh, Instagram and it's Factor Bikes. That's easy. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah. if you guys have questions for, for Rob or uh, about anything we talked about today, you can reach out to me as well. I'm at Slow Guy Fast Ride on Twitter, at Slow Guy on the Fast Ride on Instagram. And of course, you can always reach out to Ruler Magazine on any social media and of course online. Uh, Rob, thanks for waking up early today to, to chat with me about the, uh, the O2 VAM. Oh, I, appre- I appreciate the time. Yeah. And uh, for all you listening, thanks for listening today. Like I said, if you have questions about the O2 VAM, please do not hesitate to reach out. I am always happy to hear from you folks and I will happily pester Rob at six in the morning, any day of the week. (laughs) Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. And to all you listening, thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Ruler Magazine podcast. You have been listening to Ruler Conversations. Ruler Conversations is made by the editorial staff of Ruler Magazine. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Ruler and on Instagram at Ruler Magazine or visit our website at ruler.cc. This episode was produced by Amber Miller of Content is Queen. <laughs>